Romans chapter 12. I'm going to start in a way that I had not planned. It's been something that has laid on my heart over the past couple days as I studied this passage and brought it to the point of preparing it. I don't know if we're ready for this passage. And that may be more of my personal failure than yours. And what I mean by that is this. I am not sure that I have explained the doctrine of the first 11 chapters adequately in order for you to understand what we now must do. Uh, As I evaluated our church body uh, in prayer this week, I have personally struggled uh, in the preparation uh, for this message because what Paul is asking us to do is a direct relationship to how we understand the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. As such, we live in a world that is totally uh, desiring to transform or to conform your thinking. And the scripture last week said that we are to transform our thinking. Well, that can only be done through the power of the Word of God. So the only reason I am preaching this message this morning is because of the power of the Word of God. I believe completely and wholeheartedly in the authority and the power of the Word of God. And because of that, we are going to go ahead and move through this message this morning. But I want you to understand how I feel about it. Uh, I'm preaching this because I feel the Lord is leading me here. Uh, But I've struggled with the Lord over it uh, because I'm worried. I'm wondering. And so let's respond appropriately to this message this morning. Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 3 through verse 8. And I'm going to change a bit of what I do this morning because of what I have just said. Let's go to our Lord in prayer and let's ask his blessing over our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you and I praise you for this passage that is before us. Lord, I beg for my own forgiveness and any failures of my own in presenting this message of Romans to this body of believers. Lord, it is something that I have struggled with, I have wrestled with all week. And so I pray today that you would give me the words to say that as we understand your word, that it would be found faithful and true in our hearts and our lives and our actions and in our deeds. Lord, we recognize the tremendous blessings because of the first 11 chapters. And those are the things in which I feel that I have been negligent in presenting, uh, been too rigid, too firm in those doctrinal things that should have led us to glorify your name. Lord, I want us to glorify your name. And that is my heart's desire. And so as we prepare for this sermon today, I pray that you would prepare our hearts in such a way that we would be found on our knees in worship before you. On our knees in worship as we prepare to partake in this table before me because it reflects so many of the doctrines that mean so much to us. Lord, I pray that in this day and age that has pushed aside doctrine, that we would not be among them that we would recognize the power and the authority of your word and recognize that that is what brings change and nothing else. Lord, we love you. We love your word. And we thank you for the privilege of being students of it today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Jamie Durant, associate editor of ICR Acts and Facts magazine, recently shared an experience that she had in, in New York. She says, art is an appreciation. And appreciation is even the most, of even the most famous museum masterpieces runs the gamut of interests. On my recent visit to, New, to a New York museum, I noticed a crowd gathered 
around the centerpiece in the gallery exhibit, a famous painting by a famous 19th century European artist. A guard stood stiffly next to the painting, arms at his side, emotionless, silent, much like the British guards who guard Buckingham Palace. While I was thrilled to finally see the museum's acclaimed artworks, I had almost as much fun watching the visitors. Young adults would chatter about varied interpretations of the artist's secret intentions in the painting. Small children would take one look and then bounce off to the next guilt-framed magnum opus. Some husbands clearly humoring their wives, their glazed expressions, tilted heads, and furrowed brows gave them away. Some visitors were on family vacations, checking off another item on their travel itinerary with fatigued members in their entourage looking for the nearest marble bench to rest upon. One mother had two daughters in tow when she approached the centerpiece painting. While the mom scrutinized each brush stroke, the girls began to scuffle. One push led to another, and soon the youngest fell towards the painting, her head missing it by inches. The guard broke his silence, throwing out his arm and standing between the girls and the priceless work of art, saying, no, no, step back. He then directed his attention to the mother and said, It's time to move on. The guard, you see, understood the true value of the glorious masterpiece. The mother probably had an idea of its worth, but the young girls were oblivious. No doubt, like many other visitors that day, I wonder how our lives would be affected if we, like the museum goers, who valued the art because they admired the artist, genuinely value the Word because we value its author. You see, Jamie doesn't mince words. And I believe that if we admire the author, we will become living sacrifices. The idea that I want us to focus on this morning is this. It is only by the mercies of God that we are able to live godly lives in a world of sinful devastation. It is only by the mercies of God that we are able to live godly lives in a world of sinful devastation. This morning we take the challenge of Paul in the first two verses of this chapter and we follow his lead into the practical side of transformation. You see, a lot of times we stop at verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we usually stop there and we do not consider the rest of the entire book of Romans. And part of my struggle this week is the entirety of the next few chapters that close out the book of Romans is all built upon this one hinge post. You and I will be conformed to this world. We will be conformed to its evil desires if we are not transformed. So what does the work of transformation? That is the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. That's what does the work of transformation. If you've missed it, you need the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. So what does transformation look like? How does it, how does it function in a world that wants to conform? 
Paul tells us as he concludes the book. Everything we're about to say could be titled Christian living in a post-Christian world. Everything that we're going to read could be Christian living in the midst of devastating sinfulness. You see, everything from the last part of chapter 12 all the way through to the end of chapter 16 is all telling you how to be transformed. And if you are not ready to be transformed, you will not be. And that's been my struggle this week. That's been my struggle because of the doctrine. Because we need it. We must understand it. And we must make it real and alive in our hearts and lives. And if we neglect it at all, then we will not be transformed. And so it is with trepidation that let's step out this morning and take the challenge. What does it look like to be living sacrifices? How can this be a reasonable act of service? These questions will be answered as Paul is nearing the completion of his letter. So we begin first with the issue of service. The issue of service. Paul is going to have a series of issues of what it means to live transformed lives. The first is service. Service specifically within the church body. And so we are going to begin here in three ways that we ought to serve. First, we serve with sound judgment. We serve with an understanding. Without that understanding, we cannot serve appropriately. Then we're going to serve with unity. If you are serving in your own sinful desires, that is conformity, not transformation. So we will serve with unity. And then we will serve as those who desire to prove the will of God. You see, that is where Paul left us at the end of chapter 12, verse three or 2. And now he's coming right back to that. And we are going to have to learn to serve in such a manner as to prove the will of God. And so with this foundation, and having read the Scriptures already, let's go ahead and look at what it means to serve with sound judgment. Verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In order to have sound judgment, your thinking has to be transformed. Your thinking has to have been transformed by the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. Because in the doctrine of the first 11 chapters, you begin to understand what a proper view of yourself is. So what is a proper view of yourself? If you move through the doctrine, you recognize it's not very high. Paul has spent three times warning us in the last two chapters to consider ourselves. He ends chapter 11 by warning us Gentiles to be careful. And he repeats it. And then now he's coming back to it. He says, be careful. Consider yourselves. Do not think more highly than one ought to think. You must have a proper view of yourself. The issue is one each of us must be fully aware and each of us are susceptible to, if not fully given to. In sin, we are by that nature selfish, self-centered, self-motivated, self-ambitious. We have a very high view of our own self and in our own self-preservation. And Paul says, stop. Stop. What are you doing? That is not how you serve with sound judgment. Paul has to warn against this for the third time in less than two chapters. Before we can enjoy our relationship with Christ, as well as with the people who make up the body of Christ, we need to have a very high view of the Lord and a very low view of ourselves. 
Not in such a manner as we say, oh, woe is me. No, that's still high estimation. We're still establishing ourselves as higher than we ought to. We should recognize who we are. And we should recognize who God is. And in light of who He is, we are to view ourselves. And so, this can only be accomplished in the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. Go to your godly, ungodly neighbor next door and say, what do you think of me? My neighbor? Yeah, you're a good neighbor. You, you mow your lawn once a month <laughs> or more often. You, you, you treat us well. You, you send us gifts. You welcome us. You wave at us. You don't frown at us. You see, is that transformation? No. Because the believer doesn't ask his neighbor, the believer asks the Word of God, Who am I? And in understanding the Word of God, we recognize that you were destined to wrath, except by the grace of God. And the mercies of releasing you from that judgment because of Jesus Christ. In our culture, we would condemn Paul for saying this to us. How dare he speak to us as if he has the authority to do so. But wait. Notice how he begins verse 3. For through the grace given to me. You know what Paul said? This word grace is going to become very important for us. Because it's not the grace and mercy contrast that we think it is. Uh, this is a, a different definition for grace. Because it's a different word that we don't have in our English language. What Paul is saying is, in other words, in the authority, in the authority of the gift of apostle. I have the right to confront you on this issue. That's what he's saying. Because he is an apostle, he has the right to tell you to have a proper view of yourself. This sets an important stage for our service that we're going to return to in verse 6. But the word grace means the exceptional effect produced by God's generosity. The exceptional effect produced by God's generosity. You see, it's tied to grace. It's close to grace. Because grace is the blessing that you do not deserve. But in recognizing this, this is the effect. This is the verb of grace. This is, this is a recognition that because of what God has done, it's going to transform you. Keep that in mind when we get to verse 6. So, Paul says, because I'm an apostle, by the grace that was demonstrated to me. Now, I would have to say many times Paul would see the role of apostleship as a, as a weight. Not necessarily a burden, but as a weight. But here he's saying, I want you to understand the authority in which I speak these things. And he moves on and he says, we must exercise transformed thinking. Exercise transformed thinking. In order to avoid thinking too highly of ourselves, we are challenged to have sound judgment. And this points us back to verse 2. Verse 2 says that you cannot have sound judgment and think too highly of yourself. Because it says this, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. You see, transformation is not for your benefit, although you are a recipient of it. Transformation is because it is required for you to serve the Lord. Transformation is necessary. It is absolutely necessary for you to be a living sacrifice. And I believe this is why Paul says that this is optional. 
Because you want to maximize your relationship with the Lord, great. Transform your thinking. And it starts with yourself. Transform your view of yourself. Exercise transformed thinking. You see, we see this displayed in Paul's thinking. Because instead of other places in Scripture, him saying uh, that he is this great apostle, he says, no, I am the chief of sinners. He goes, I am the Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he's not using it in a good context. Paul understood transformed thinking, and he first applied it to himself. He understood his despicable standing before the Lord because of the doctrine in which he wrote to you and I about, specifically first to the Romans. And I will submit to you that you cannot have sound judgment without a sound understanding of God. You cannot do it. So unless you have a sound understanding of God, you will live conformed lives to the world. Transformation only happens because of the doctrine and the power of the Word of God. Knowable, yet unknowable. Understanding God. And you cannot have a sound understanding of God without a sound understanding of how He has revealed Himself in His works, in His character, in His mercy, and in, his, in the rest of His attributes. Don't tell anybody that this is theology. This is theology. And it transforms lives. Instead of being conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Paul understands that we need the first 11 chapters of Romans, before we can maximize our relationship with God because we need to have sound judgment. We need to have sound judgment. And this means that we should do something. We should respond. Verse 3, at the end of verse 3 says, As God has allotted to each a measure of faith, be committed. Not to some institution somewhere. Be committed to the Lord. Be committed to the Lord. You can only have sound judgment when it is used under the allotment of faith you have received from the Lord. God does not ask you to be the preacher. That's my gift. God does not ask you to do anything that you have not been given. He asks you to do something else. Whatever it happens to be in your own heart and life. You see, God has allotted to each a measure of faith, and you will be judged based upon your ability to complete that. You see, the word of faith seems to have in mind the ability to use the gift that God has given. One commentator said, spiritual gifts do not reflect the worth of a person who has them. For example, a person who has a gift that enables him to minister effectively to large crowds of people should not conclude that he or she is a superior Christian. You see, Paul says, before I can get to the issue of gifts, each one of you have been lauded a measure of faith, and each one is of equal value in the eyes of the Lord. I want to ask you something. Are you exercising your gift as equal in the eyes of the Lord to everyone else in this body? If not, you need to have transformed thinking. Therefore, your commitment to the body of Christ is based on reality. To the extent that you are able to use your gifts, do so in abundance. That is what Paul is saying in verse 3. To the extent that God has given you the measure of faith, the measure of the ability to fulfill the gift, do so in abundance. And then he moves on to verses 4 and 5. Use that gift, therefore, 
in service with unity. Verses 4 and 5 say this, For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. You see, first, in order to serve with unity, we must understand the body. We had to understand self. I hope we have captured that. Now we need to understand the body. Paul reveals the reason for using our gifts. If you and I are members of a much larger larger organism, the church, universal, then we must function within that church first locally and then individually. So you see there's a progress. If you do not do your job as a Christian, as one who has been given an allotment, a measure of faith, then you are disrupting not only the local church, you are disrupting the church universal. As members of one another, we cannot work independently, effectively. Boy, that is countercultural, isn't it? As members of the church, as members of one another, we cannot work independently, effectively. One person can't do the work. One person can't be effective in ministry unless everyone else is too. Each member profits from the contribution of every other member. This realization should help us to become, help us to avoid becoming proud. When you understand that you are relying upon the one sitting across from you, the one sitting in front of you, the one sitting behind you, and people you've never met, When you begin to realize that, you go, you know what? I can't be proud, because if I am, I'm going to hurt the church universal. Talk about transformed thinking, especially in our culture of individualism. Our culture where we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And while that's fine for living outside in the world, which I hope in many ways that we do, But in the body of Christ, I know that it is Christ who builds His church. And in so doing has given me the gifts that I need to utilize to the fullest of my abilities. And only to that point. He doesn't ask me to do uh, Swindoll's messages. He doesn't ask me to do MacArthur's messages. He asks me to do my messages. And He asks you to do your work whatever that happens to be. In our world, this is unheard of. This is unheard of. Even in our Christian world, selfish ambition is the chief driving force in our world today. And that is conformity to the world. If you are self-ambitious within the body of Christ, that is conformity to this world. If you are here this morning only to see what you can receive, You are here for the wrong reasons. Because that is conformed thinking, not transformed thinking. And verse 4 continues by reminding us that we should practice our role. Understand the body, the large body, the church universal, church local, the individual, and then practice your role. Verse 4 says, For just as we have many members in one, body, in one body, and all members do not have the same function. If you all became just like one person, that would be wrong. That would be 
deeply wrong. We are to practice our individual role. Your role in the church is not the same as mine. I can't do it all, and neither can you. Your role is unique. Your role is distinctly your own. And so is mine. You see, within the body, I need you to faithfully utilize your gifts as much as you need me to utilize mine. As much as you need me, I need you. And it works between every single one in this room and every single one in the church universal. Paul is clear, however, that we do not all have the same function. There is a mutual need of each other, specific gifts utilized within the body of believers. And increasingly, we live in a world that is all about, what will you do for me? Paul says that's conformed thinking. It is not about you, it is what you are going to do for another. How are you utilizing your gift? Because that is the only way that your relationship with your Lord will be maximized. And I have watched it time and time again, where believers have quit doing this. They have sought to see, what will you do for me? And their relationship with the Lord suffers. You see, this then becomes reflected not only in our church body, it becomes reflected in our workplace. This this idea of what are you going to do for me? We begin to look at our jobs that way. We begin to look at politics that way. You want evidence of that? Watch November 6th. There's a large percentage of our country that's going to vote because of what the government will do for them. It's wrong. It's conformed to the world, but it's wrong biblically. And unfortunately, this has moved into the body of Christ. But if you listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and you are a living sacrifice, the question becomes, are you doing all that you can for the body of Christ? Nowhere in that is, what is the body of Christ doing for me? Not one single time. And Paul moves on. No, no need to belabor the point. He moves on to verse 5. He says this, So we who are many are one. One body in Christ. And individual members one of another. One in the body of Christ. In the church, you cannot function as a standout. can't. Because that's not your job. There is only one standout. And it is Christ. It's not your body. It's not what is the body going to do for me. It's the body of Christ. How are you going to participate in it? You will never find satisfaction as a Christian. Listen carefully. You will never find satisfaction as a Christian unless you are functioning within your God-given role. It cannot happen. It is impossible. In this dispensation... Our identity is not national as it was with Israel in the dispensation of the law and will be again for Israel in the dispensation of the millennium. Our identity is not national. Our identity is eternal. It is eternal. Therefore, our actions should reflect this truth. Our actions should reflect this truth. Let's get on to the next aspect. Serve in light of grace. Serve in light of grace. Verses 6 through 8. 
And I'm going to handle this passage a little differently than you might expect. Um, But let's go ahead and read the text. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. By the way, I love the way the ESV puts that. It says, let's use them. (laughs) Instead of, let's exercise this accordingly, it says, let's use them. Uh, But continuing on, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives uh, with liberty, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, Again, I like the ESV, it says, he who uh, shows mercy with joyfulness. You see, verse 6, Paul says this, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use it. Let's use it. Each of us, exercise them accordingly. Paul says, use your individual gift. Excuse me. Paul began the discussion on gifts by pointing to the authority of apostleship by revealing the grace that the Lord had given to him. Remember that? Verse 3, I said remember it. In verse 3, it says this, For through the grace given to me, I say. Paul says, because I have been gifted as an apostle, I have the authority to say this to you. Now Paul says, each of you has been given, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have already come to believe in that, you've trusted in Him, in Christ alone, by faith alone, then you will use your gift. In verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You see, the realization is you have a measure of grace too. Paul had it, you've got it. In the same way Paul exercised it, so are you. Can you imagine Paul saying, you know what? high of myself today. I mean, he wouldn't think this consciously, but thinking a little high of myself today, and I'm not really going to challenge those Christians because they may not like me anymore. And I like to be liked. We all do. And he didn't write this passage. Would you know how to use your gift in the body? Would you know how to maximize your relationship with your Lord? Now, let's bring that down to your level. You've been given a measure of grace of the equal value of Paul's. What if you decide to think more highly of yourself today than you ought to think? What damage have you done? What ripples will transcend through the body of Christ? But that's a choice you can make. God's will will still be accomplished. That's a choice you can make. It is is truly something that you can choose to do or not do. It is optional. But Paul is making it more more and more clear that it is not optional if you want to have a maximized relationship with your Lord. Your gift is to be uniquely yours, given by the Lord for the work you should do in the portion of the body in which you belong, as you are able to do so. Remember what I said about grace? The word grace means the exceptional effect produced by God's generosity. The exceptional effect produced by God's generosity. Do you act like God's gift to humanity? That's not what grace is. Or do you realize that you are a sinner who has been given tremendous grace and the opportunity to be used in the building up of the body? Do a quick survey of the theology. You're a sinner. 
in desperate need of Christ. There's a precious gift. Christ who dies in your place. And then the process of sanctification begins. Transforming you from a product of the world, a product of your sinful nature, into a useful member of the body of Christ. You do not deserve it. But God is going to sanctify you. He is going, he's already justified you in your salvation. He's sanctifying you in your Christian life. And He's going to glorify you eternally. And yet, in the process of sanctification, you who was an enemy of Christ, an enemy of God, has now been used to build up the body of Christ. That is grace you did not deserve. And that is grace I do not deserve. And yet, by a measure of grace, God is going to use me to help build up His body. He can do the work. He doesn't need me. But by His grace, He's going to use me to build up the body. And by His grace, He's given you the opportunity to participate in the building up of the body. What a tremendous opportunity to be utilized as a gift to build up the body of Christ. So, 6 through 8. Utilize your gift as worship. Utilize your gift as worship. See, it doesn't matter which gift you have. And that's why I'm handling this passage somewhat differently. See, this list of gifts is not exhaustive. It is interesting, and it is important, but it is just a sampling of the gifts, all used, all used to, be, to establish a point. And that point is that Paul is using these examples to reveal how each one ought to employ their gifts in the body of Christ. If you have one of these gifts, then use it abundantly. And in using it abundantly, that is your reasonable act of service. That's what Paul is pointing us back to. Notice how it ends in verse 2. He says this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is acceptable, which is good and acceptable and perfect. You have an opportunity to prove what the will of God is. And Paul says at the end of verse 1 that that is your reasonable act of service. This is reasonable. The, it is reasonable for the Lord to ask you to be transformed and not be conformed. Not conformed to the world, transformed in your thinking. That is a reasonable request. But then the Lord did one more step. Another in a series of multiple steps. He said, I'm going to give you what is necessary for you to be transformed. And I'm going to give you a gift in which you can be blessed while you're blessing the body of Christ, which is being used to build up the body of Christ. What an amazing dichotomy. And we miss it because of selfishness. We miss it because we are focused on ourselves. Paul is using these examples to reveal how each one ought to employ their gifts in the body of Christ. He says, do so abundantly. Whatever your gift is, do it in abundance. Regardless of your gift you that you have, you are to employ it to the fullest of your ability because of the grace that has been given to you. If your heart's desire is to maximize your relationship with the Lord, to be a living 
sacrifice. You must have transformation in your thinking. And that is only accomplished by the renewing of your mind. And Paul is saying that that is accomplished by using your gifts. What the Lord has given to you for the purpose of building up the body of believers for His glory and demonstrating His grace. This is just one of the ways we serve as living sacrifices in the service of our Lord. Paul has a whole list of others, and we're going to get into them over the next several weeks. The next one, you can see right there in the passage, is how you should behave in the world around you. How are you going to behave in the world around you? Are you going to be conformed to this world? Or are they going to know that you are different? Are they going to know you are different from the very first words out of your mouth, even though they may ridicule you for them? Of course, it is optional. It is optional. You can deny it. You can try to get all you can from the church with minimal effort on your part. And there will be some. There will be some that you gain. But the result in your heart and in your life will be animosity towards the church, will be animosity towards its leaders, will be animosity towards its members, and will eventually be animosity towards its head, Christ. You see, Paul says it's optional, but there's only two options. Maximize your relationship with the Lord or have animosity in your heart towards the Lord. And if you understand the doctrine, the first 11 chapters, how dare you? How dare you have animosity towards our Lord? You see, when you have animosity towards the Lord, you are conformed. You are conformed to the world, not transformed by the renewing of your heart, renewing of your mind. As we... Prepare to partake in the table before me. We recognize that as a body of Christians, body of believers, locally, this local fellowship, we are part of something truly amazing. A larger organism. This isn't just a building. This isn't just a house where, where the church assembles. This is a, a living organism. And as such, there will be problems. There should be growth. There should be Christians using their gifts to their fullest because we recognize that it's not just part of the local assembly, it's part of the universal assembly with its head being Christ. Do you want to maximize your relationship with the Lord? Then you will be found faithful in transforming your thinking. And the first step of that is to adjust yourself. To adjust yourself. It's not easy. In our world, many would cast Paul aside and say, we don't want to hear it anymore. In fact, many have. Is that how you will respond? I pray that it is not. As I close in prayer, I'm going to ask that the men who are going to help with communion would come up and that we would be in the faithful action of preparing our hearts for the doctrine that we celebrate before me. Father, we do thank you in ways we cannot express. Lord, as 
those who walked by that masterpiece in New York who had no idea of the value. We so often walk past your grace. But Lord, we love you. We love your word. We understand the cost was enormous. We understand the price was tremendous. But it was all offered to us as a gift. Those who did not deserve it, those who did not want it, those who were enemies of yours. Lord, help us to think of ourselves as we ought to think. We live in a world that we believe we have to um, be concerned with number one because no one else will be but in recognition we recognize that as believers that is absolutely not true we look out for each other because we're all looking out for each other we're using our gifts to build up the body of Christ so that your name will be glorified through us we recognize your name will be glorified but it is a privilege to be a part of it would help us to treat it that way Help us to have that ambition in our heart. As we prepare to partake this table before me, I pray that you would be in the active process of preparing our hearts and our lives to not just partake, but to partake with thankfulness, with gratitude, to recognize what it was that you did for us on the cross, what it was that you have done to bring us to the point where we can function in grace given to us. In light of all of this, Lord, Bless us as a family of believers. Cause us to have a tremendous impact in our community for the sake of Christ. And as we move through Romans chapters 12 through chapter 16, fundamentally transform us into the image of Christ. That we would be faithful. That we would not be lukewarm. And that your name would be glorified in our lives. Lord, we love you beyond what we can describe. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.